0: Let's pray together, and you can share with the Lord your desire to be open and sensitive to His Word. Father, we are grateful that You pursued Adam, You pursued Eve, after they failed to trust You. Thank You that You pursued Abraham. You pursued Isaac, you pursued Jacob, and you pursued Israel through the prophets. Your ultimate pursuit came in the person of Christ. We know that Adam is called the first Adam, Christ is called the second Adam. What Adam did, Christ came to provide victory over. As we interact with your word, we want to be hearers endures of your word. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we asked the question this morning, what is a man? What is manhood? We found that Adam, as well as Eve, was created in God's image. Adam was given responsibility to lead, and so on. And we know that he was very, very passive when we get to Genesis chapter 3. And we find down through the pages of history that men tend to struggle with that. It was some years later that there was a man who had two sons. His sons would have sexual relations with the women as they came to the temple to worship. His sons would take more of the meat from the sacrifice than they were required or should have taken And we find that Eli and his descendants were no longer to serve because Eli failed to restrain his sons. He was a passive father. As you study the life of David, you will find David, because of his own sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, that there was going to be a penalty and the penalty involved his own children. And we know that... (coughs) his one son raped his daughter you No, know, a half brother raping his half sister and then we know that uh, another son killed that son and you will find again that david was passive and that seems to be some of the char- one of the characteristics that men struggle with down through the pages of time. And just briefly, we're not going to look at these scriptures, but we'll look at Matthew 4 in just a few minutes. <laughs> but as you contrast Adam and Christ, you will find there's a sharp difference between Adam and Christ. And the reason we contrast Adam and Christ is because the whole human race is an Adam. And then Christ came, he's the second Adam. And keep in mind that scripture talks about the human race being in Adam, not in Eve. And we, a lot may be said about Eve and how she partook of the fruit and so on, but God held Adam responsible. Very, very important. First Corinthians chapter 15, again, we're not going to turn there, just for sake of uh, a little comparison here. In Adam, death came, according to 1 Corinthians 15. In Christ, the resurrection of the dead. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all believers will be made alive. In Adam, we have a living being. In Christ, we have a life giving spirit. In Adam, we have a man who was of the dust of the earth. In Christ, we have a man who was from heaven. In Adam, we have a natural man. In Christ, we have a spiritual man. Again, contrasting the two. In Romans chapter 5, you will find that, again, there's a contrast between Adam and between Christ. In Romans 5 12 through 21, we find that through Adam, sin entered the world. Through Christ, a gift entered the world. Through Adam, death to all humans. Through Christ, grace overflowed to many. Through Adam, judgment and condemnation. Through Christ, justification are being declared righteous. Through Adam, death reigns. Through Christ, we reign in life. Through Adam, there's condemnation for all men. And Christ, a justification that brings life. In Adam, there's disobedience of many. In Christ, he obeyed, and many will be made righteous. In Adam, sin reigns in death. In Christ, grace reigns in eternal life. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. And I want you to think about Matthew chapter 4 in contrast to what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now when you read scripture, it is important to keep in mind the context of scripture. Sometimes we go to passage, we read the passage, and we stop with that. It is impossible to understand Matthew chapter 4 without looking at part of chapter 3. Impossible to grasp chapter 4 the first 11 verses without looking at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, we find John the Baptist is preparing the way for Christ, the one who is a Lamb of God, according to John chapter 1 and verse 29. And John knows, saying, There's someone beyond me that is coming. And in verse 13 of Matthew 3, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus has been baptized, heaven opens, he, Christ, saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Who is making the statement in verse 17? Who is speaking in verse 17? Okay, the Father. God is speaking. That's critical. You cannot understand Matthew 4, 1 through 11, unless you understand that God spoke and said, this is my father or this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's critical. It's vital. I'll explain Matthew 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit immediately after the baptism, immediately after hearing, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, the Spirit of God descending in him like a dove. Jesus was led by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is leading Jesus. Where? Into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, the serpent, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We could say a lot about a lot of things about this passage, but just a few. Notice he says, if. If introduces doubt. Maybe you're not the son of God. But please also notice that the doubt introduced is based upon what the father had said about Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now the serpent and tempter is coming along saying, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Did God really say you're the son of God? Is that really true? If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Prove it. Prove that you're the son of God. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The serpent came to Eve, and Adam passively stood on the side. He did not say, Eve, let's... Let me handle this. He did not use God's word. Jesus does not turn stones to bread. Rather, he uses scripture. He believed what the father said about him. So there was no need to prove anything because the father said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. So what did he do? He used the father's word. To resist. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, Now the serpent, the tempter, the devil is coming and he quotes Scripture. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift your lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now that's a quote from Psalm 91. Now here's the enemy, here's the tempter, here's the devil quoting scripture to Jesus. Now if you go back to Psalm 91, we won't do that tonight, but if you go back to Psalm 91, you will find that he is yanking that out of context. Because Psalm 91 is not saying you can violate God's, laws in the universe and expect God to keep you from hurting yourself. You'd like me going up in the church roof at the end of the building and saying, God, <clears throat> you say that uh, you'll command your angels concerning me and they'll lift me up so that I won't strike my foot against these stones or the sidewalk when I land in the bottom. Psalm 91 is not promising that because you're violating a natural law. Of God. See, he's using scripture, but he yanks it out of context. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, he didn't follow or fall into the devil's trap. He accepted God at his word this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And he quotes scripture. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and allowed him or showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he, the tempter, the devil said, if you will bow down and worship me. All the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. he said, I will, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you. And keep in mind that Satan is the God of this world. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Jesus is tempted in three different ways, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And each time, he counts what God said about him to be true. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What is the difference between Adam and Jesus? Adam was passive. He stood on the sideline, and he did not use scripture. Jesus, on the other hand, was not passive. He didn't stand on the sideline. He took an active role. He resisted the enemy, and he believed what God said when God said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. He didn't have anything to prove. He knew who he was. He believed what God said about him. And then what did he do? He quoted scripture. the distinction between Adam and Christ is that Christ was not passive. He was responsible. He believed what God said about him, and he used scripture. Mark difference between the two. Now let's think about two masculine identities played out practically. Think about Adam's manhood becoming conventional manhood, Jesus' manhood becoming authentic manhood. Conventional manhood, what a man does. Now think about, you meet other men, and if you ladies or girls listen to guys talk, they'll talk a lot about what a man does. You meet someone you don't know him well. Well what do you do? Now we identify a lot in what we do. So someone says, uh, "What do you do? Well, I shovel manure. You what? Shovel manure. What do you do? Well, I own a corporation. A multi billion dollar corporation. Wow. See, men tend to measure by what they do. In Christ, it's what a man is his integrity, his character. So, whether he shovels manure or he owns a corporation, what's his character? What's his integrity? Christ knew who he was. He had integrity. He was a man of character. Conventional manhood. Competition with other men. Oh, we guys just love to get out there and whip someone else. Why else do you have arguments at a church softball game? Because men are competing in conventional way. They're being men. Oh, that wasn't a good call. You no, know, they'll argue over that. You've seen it? Oh, that was not a ball. That was a strike. Oh, he was out. Just being normal men. And you know, we love to compete. You know what boys will do they'll talk about their dad. My dad can beat your dad up. Again, the whole competitive thing. My dad's better than yours, you know. In Christ, there's community with other men. So you meet another man, he's a believer in Christ, and it's not what do you do, how are you, who would you win? What's the struggle you're facing in life at this point in time? hey, can we pray together? Man, I heard you got a promotion in the job. You got a big raise. I'm so happy for you. I hear your wife is sick. Can I come and cry with you? See, you even have a hard time relating to a man crying, don't you? You say men don't have emotions. We've been taught men don't have emotions. Jesus wept. A number of occasions. See, there's community when we're in Christ. <clears throat> when we think about conventional manhood, a number of things mentioned here, temporal par- power. You know, we'd like to have control over people. You no, know, control our wife, control our children, control someone else, or you know we get this big hot car, sixty nine Chevelle. I wanted a four barrel on it, three fifty engine, four speed in the floor. Never got it. My brother got close to it, but I couldn't drive his. You know he had a sixty five Chevelle, four barrel. You know, nice size engine, four in the floor. But you know that's a form of power. How about personal rewards? You know we love rewards. As men. Success or self. We're concerned about self. How many of the average guys sit down to a meal that's going to have their favorite pizza? There's nine guys there and there's eight pieces of pizza. And all nine guys say, come on guys, you can have it. I don't need one. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, I better get my hand in there first. And looking out for self. Not being critical, you guys, you know, just the way we are. You no, know, you have apple pies coming around, you think, I hope they don't take that big piece. You know, I want to, you know. How about success? You know, we like to brag about things. In contrast to <clears throat> temporal power, transcendent power power with God in contrast to personal rewards eternal rewards in contrast to self a deep concern for others in contrast to success just a significant life because you're walking with God see the conventional side is in Adam that's who we are, guys. And you ladies don't laugh too hard because, you know, you have some Eve characteristics. <laughs> but this is the way we guys are. But in Christ, we shift. Now we can read Matthew chapter 4 and we can say, well, Christ had an advantage. He just knew all of Scripture. Did he? I don't think so. Would you say he was the God-man. But scripture says he went home with his parents after the temple deal and he grew in stature with God and with man. He apparently would have had to learn some scripture and then use it in context in resisting the enemy. If you want to describe a man on the right hand side, that's probably the type of guy that God is looking for. For you girls, if you're looking for a hubby someday, look for a guy on the right that has some of those qualities that are being developed. You guys, if you're younger, develop some of those items on the right hand side. No, be a man. Don't be a wuss. Don't be passive. Don't just sit and let the world go by. Don't let life happen. Walk with God. A couple questions. We'll see how far we get. What is the major difference between Adam and Christ that made such a difference in their response to temptation? Jesus was not passive. He took responsibility. He resisted. And he used Scripture. That so sets Adam or Christ apart from Adam. Maybe that's why it's important that we learn Scripture that we develop in understanding scripture. (coughs) Ruthann. Did Adam doubt God? (coughs) Okay, did Adam doubt God? That was Ruth Ann's question. If you go back to Genesis 2, you don't need to turn there, but I think as you read the flow of the context, that Adam did not grasp or act on what God had said. God gave instructions to him. He was to be the leader. He was to use scripture. He was to instruct his wife. And he at least doubted God if in no other way Well, I'll let Eve take care of this one. He knew he was the leader. He knew he was to be the leader. He named the animals. God spoke directly to him. He gave him the word. So I would be inclined to say yes. Adam doubted, and he would have displayed that doubt by letting the serpent, come to Eve without responding so would have doubted God's order and pattern I think any other comments before we go on now think about how this plays out practically how many of you guys have thought about cutting a corner on the job If you have thought about cutting a corner on the job, you've been tempted. Because God states pretty clearly that you're not to cut corners on the job. You're working on to God, not on to humans. That applies to you ladies and you gals, too. Just being where the rubber meets the road, how many of you guys currently or in the past, depends on your age and so on, have been tempted to thinking correctly about someone other than your wife or your girlfriend, and even thinking correctly about a girlfriend or someone not your girlfriend. That's the enemy. You're tempted. See, when we doubt, we give in, and we act on that, and we go to that porn site. We doubt God because God said one man, one woman, and the woman you have, whenever you have her as a wife, she's sufficient. And until that time comes, no. See, we doubt. See, that's, we're talking day by day living doubting where we're tempted. We're not talking pie in the sky stuff. That's just, you know, the big deal. So I drive down the road, and I go through West Nanticoke, and the third speed limit sign says 35, and I think, hmm, I'm going to be late. And I go 50, and the policeman stops me. Even before I got there, see, I was tempted to doubt. Well, you know, God, God says it's okay to compromise here because I'm a little late. So I can violate what the government says about how fast I'm supposed to go, and it's okay. See, that's a form of doubt. See, when we talk about the enemy working, the enemy tempting, and we're talking men now, we're talking about rubber meets the road day by day, moment by moment, living, so I get on my email, and uh, once in a while little blurbs come up, nothing terrible. My mind thinks, no, do I want to go there? The enemy is down. No, I don't want to go there, but the enemy is working. Jesus took responsibility. I will not go there. I will not yield to doubt because Christ is my life. Any other comments before I go to another question? What does marriage look like for a couple who is seeking to live Genesis 1 and 2 and related passages? <clears throat> Any response? I think the husband would be a helper. No. No. He would be a leader. His wife would be a helper. Now, please understand, when I talk about a leader, I'm not talking a dictator and I'm not talking controlling. I'm talking leading. And if you look at the life of Christ, Christ led by modeling a godly life. He became a servant. So it would involve a husband leading, a wife being a helper, following. I think it would involve moving towards, and I say moving towards because we never arrived there, total openness. So Ann says, how are you today, honey? Fine. What did you do today, work? That's, that's not good. Honey, how are you today? I'm doing okay considering the fact that uh, my head hurts and my joints hurt. and I had a funeral yesterday and I it just really grieves me to the nth degree when I have to try to minister to grieving people because my heart goes out to them. You know, I'm really struggling, honey. After I pick her up off the floor for saying all that stuff, she says, "Boy, honey, what happened to you? Well, i was just walking in spirit. <laughs> How was your day? Well, I uh, I went uptown and I visited So So in the hospital and. I got stuck in some traffic, and you know I didn't get upset at all while I was stuck in the traffic, and I uh, kept my cool, and I, it was my time to talk to God some more and go over some scriptures that I'm memorizing. And, uh, I stopped in to see someone else, and it was just kind of a heartbreaker for me because uh, I so desperately want the person to come to Christ, and they were just kind of hard. So it's moving towards Openness. I think that would be involved. I think seeking God together. An example. A couple praying together for their children, their grandchildren, an unsaved neighbor for a fellow believer, and so on. I said praying together. I'm going to make a statement here, and I want you to grasp it. For a husband and a wife to pray about the same thing separate is contrary to what God designed. Two become one. There's a much difference or a great difference between a husband and wife praying together about the same item than praying separate because God designed them to become one, and as a unit, they pray together. They discuss together. Will you say, I don't like to pray with my wife? Why not? Well, I might not do it well. Why do you have to impress her? Aren't you accepted in Christ? We guys struggle with leading spiritually. Why? We're in Adam. But if we have trusted in Christ, we can take leadership. So my wife goes off in her corner crying because of something that happened in the family. I go off in my corner and cry because something happened in the family. And we're both concerned about the same thing. And God says, how about just coming together and crying together and talking to me? If I cannot... Pray with my wife. How can I integrity, with integrity, pray with anyone else? Because a marriage relationship is the closest bond. Or discuss scripture and so on. Guys, that's why we struggle so. The enemy knows that if we can be open with our wives and our wives open with us, <clears throat> that we'll conquer so much that happens in families And in communities. What's he want us to do? Go our separate ways. I'm not being hard on you men. I want us to see how the enemy works. I think that's part of just Genesis 1 and 2 related passage passages <clears throat> you know how it might look <clears throat> it would involve sharing struggles I said to root. one time <clears throat> you know I feel like beating so and so up you know what that is you know just go pound their face in a little or whatever you say pastor you know a little righteous indignation is in order isn't it <laughs> Oh, I see you going back there. I've not done that. But why can't I share that with my wife? She's my helper. She can say, Dan, I just want you to know if you do that, I probably won't come to visit you in <laughs> jail. No, but, you know, she's my helper. She can encourage me, Dan, that wouldn't be a good thing to do. She has a restrained evil in me quite often because I shared with her. She's to be a helper, isn't she? But if she's gonna help, I have to share. Again, what it might look like. What tools can men use to avoid being passive? Or to avoid passivity, rather. What tools can men use to avoid passivity? Let's have some response. What tools can men use to avoid passivity? And in that question, I'm assuming we are tempted to be passive. If you guys aren't, that's okay. I'm tempted to be passive. I much sooner sit around and we go to bed at night and think, oh, we should have talked about this. We should have discussed this. We should have looked at scripture. We should have prayed about this. And well, another time. Five years later, well, another time. <laughs> what tools can men use to be avoid passivity? Accountability. 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 Some of you guys already know this. There are some guys that I will call, or if I see them personally, I'll say, I want to know what you've been doing with the internet. Have you been on? What have you looked at? You've been looking at anything you shouldn't look at. You say, why do you ask them? Because we have an agreement. Sometimes they'll say good, and sometimes they you know, respond otherwise. You say, who are you to do that? I'm a brother to another brother. So accountability. I have a couple pastor friends that I will call at times and uh, ask them some very pointing questions. And some of those same guys asked me some pretty pointed questions. <laughs> you know, just the whole issue of accountability. <clears throat> we need it. Any others? <clears throat> you know, how can we, tools to keep from being passive or yielding to passivity? Was about Scripture because he had stuff ready to go. Okay, think Scripture. <clears throat> Think scripture. Don't wait until you need it. Think it before you need it. <laughs> just, you know, think scripture. Uh, just in my own life, as the years have gone by, I uh, don't listen to a lot of radio when I'm in the car. I'm not opposed to radio, but that's a lot of think time. Think about God, who he is. Think scripture, memorize scripture. You know, you can do, I can do more than one thing. I can do more than drive. But, uh, you know, think scripture, memorize scripture. It will serve you well. Any other thoughts? How can you avoid passivity? (coughs) Okay, you mean take responsibility? Take responsibility. (coughs) Act. You know, don't put off forever and ever. (coughs) Okay, take responsibility. <coughs> you're bombarded constantly by what do you do. You're not what you do, you are. And that's, okay. I, mean, I mean, I know I work as a woman in that area, sure you're in and so you're his son. You're not what you done today, or what, what how much okay. you're So, think who we are in Christ, not measuring ourselves by what we do, what we've accomplished, and so on. I think that's where you're coming from, honey, right? passive because we're in Adam. He's to blame. They have someone to blame. If we make the decision, No, you. you see... But you see where I'm coming from when I said we blame Adam. Well, I'm in mean Adam. <clears throat> I'm responsible for my choices. But fear may come in. But I think... It, Probably not as, you tell me guys if I'm wrong, it's probably not as much fear as just plain downright passive. We're not willing to take the initiative. Sure men are lazy. Well, that goes with passivity. We would much sooner sit back and just let the world go by than step up and be a man and take responsibility. I think when we're seeking to step up and take responsibility, then we're afraid if I make this decision, will my wife get angry, will the kids get angry, what will the neighbor think, and so on. So it depends, you know, where we are. I know, but let me ask this. If you're fixing the washing machine, can you not probably think something about God at the same time or just your attitude in fixing it? You know, you might say, God, I'm ready to kill this machine <laughs> You know, and help me to respond correctly. see, I think that ties in with the fact that there is not sacred in life and there is not secular in life. All of life is sacred. So whether you're fixing a van or pounding a nail at work or running a nail gun at work or talking to someone on the job or Bill's doing some plumbing on the job, that's sacred work. You're fixing the washing machine. That's sacred work. There's no sacred secular. And when we make that divide, we get ourselves into trouble because all of life is sacred. So my brothers and I would shovel, excuse the term, chicken poop for weeks on end. We'd get up in the morning, we'd feed the steers, we'd go out and we'd shovel manure. Then we would gather eggs and we'd go back to shovel manure. Then we'd go back to gathering more eggs and washing eggs and feeding the steers and the next day the same thing shoveling that manure was sacred work and if we chose to complain about it we played into the devil's territory because if we complained about it we're complaining about God say complaining about God yeah because dad is an authority over us and if we resist that authority of who is dad appointed by God we're resisting God so we had to be careful that we didn't complain life is sacred and pray about it fixing a van (laughs) or fixing a washing machine or your kids or whatever It's sacred. You say oh, that's too minor to talk to God about. Who said? Where do you find that in Scripture? <clears throat> and when I talk about things, the mind runs. The run. <clears throat> the mind thinks a lot. <clears throat> I'm driving down the road. I don't have to concentrate solely in my driving. No, I, I think. Maybe no one else does, but I, you know our mind thinks. We're out mowing the lawn. <clears throat> you think. <clears throat> We're painting something, you know, we can think. So I think there's a tremendous temptation just to be passive as we seek to act. <clears> then <throat> I think fear kicks in in many ways, you know, as Ruth Ann is saying. But please recognize the enemy lures guys to be passive. And keep in mind who we are in Christ. My father-in-law was a trucker. My father-in-law had a dry sense of humor at times. A policeman stopped him one time. And the policeman said, you know, came up, I guess, somewhat cocky from what Dick said. Well, who do you think you are? And Dick, you know, sometimes, like I said, had a sense of humor. He says, well, I'm a child of the king. The policeman said, oh, okay, you may go. I'm not proposing that to get out of a ticket or anything. But think about your identity. So you've worked all your life and you don't have millions to retire on. Who am I? I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. Boy, I blew it as a husband. Oh, I can look back in my early years in marriage and think... Boy, I didn't talk to my wife. I expected she could read my mind. <clears throat> I expected far too much out of her in some areas. And I could list other things that I blew it. I wasn't as kind as I should have been probably when she tore the fender off the opal. I can think back about that and say I was, was not too smart. Let's leave that go. I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, I'm a child of God, I'm a saint. That's true day by day. So what do you do for a living? Well, I'm involved with people. What do you do with people? Well, I talk to them. Why do you talk to them? I'm a pastor. Oh. What's happened to me? Who am I? I'm in Christ. Some other questions, we won't get to them tonight. Guys, we struggle. Let's admit it. You ladies, you know we struggle. Pray for us. But let's together encourage one another to become all that God wants us to be in Christ.